from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey Yong. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February fifth. Today, how Democrats are jamming through Biden's COVID relief plan, and the economics of America's chicken wings. We got a very important first step towards the passage of President Biden's $1.9 trillion economic relief package on Friday morning when after over 15 hours of debate and amendments and grumbling among older Senate lawmakers, the Senate passed the budget resolution that will clear the way for the committees of jurisdiction in the Senate to turn Biden's stimulus package into law. My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. And that means these days I mostly cover the stimulus. So we're we're talking sort of in in morning of Friday. By this afternoon, the House is expected to have passed the budget resolution, which will clear the way for work to begin on Biden's relief plan. This is really, really step one. I think it's important for people to understand because it gets confusing. This is allowing the committees to start writing the rules that then they'll put the actual legislation on top of. And that's a whole separate process that's going to be weeks away. So what's happening today, it's important for people to understand, is not the stimulus bill passing. It's the first step in a process that will allow Congress to pass the stimulus without any Republican support. And this very wonky, complicated process that you're talking about, this kind of came at the end of essentially an all-nighter for the Senate. Thank you so much for being part of this, putting our country back on the road to recovery. For the families who are struggling to pay rent or to put food on the table, this $1,400 will make a significant impact on their ability to get by. We end this debate in a moment in which our country faces more crises since the Great Depression. Amendments were being proposed and they were being rejected. And it was like a very strange night in the Senate. You know, the Senate has this process called Votorama in which dozens and dozens of amendments can be offered. Uh, My Republican colleagues have filed over 550 amendments, which theoretically means that we'll be here for days, but I think not. I have the feeling it'll be a very long night. This is the one time with budget Votorama where anybody can ask for a vote on anything. Now, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with the senator from Utah's request. Also, can I just say that the idea that there is a thing that happens in the Senate that has like a semi-official term of voterama just speaks to how messed up the state of our legislative process is right now. They def- I think they got it from the wrestling um, term. <laughs> I, I think that's where it, where it comes from originally. Um, <laughs> but you'll have to check the Senate historians on that. The amazing thing about the 500 amendments is that they are not actually binding. So this passing, whatever, all of the different things they voted on last night were purely for show. Senator from Texas, Mr. Cruz, proposes an amendment number 871. Mr. President, this amendment is designed to provide relief to the tens of thousands of blue-collar workers that work at refineries across this country. Whatever they pass can just be obviated later when they actually write the bill. So it was sort of like meaninglessness on top of meaninglessness. Senator from Iowa is recognized for one minute. Can you imagine the free market person that Senator Cruz is wanting the government to set prices? This is, this is, dirt, this is dirty big oil 
versus clean burning ethanol. You don't hear that much bipartisan agreement, but basically every House or Senate aide I talked to last night was basically bemoaning this process as a complete waste of time. At one point, Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island offered an amendment in the Voterama uh, that would have abolished uh, Voteramas, although because of the rules of Voterama, it actually would not have done that. So quite a summation of, of the silliness last night. All right. In a sign of how partisan and closely divided this process was, last night, Vice President Harris had to come to the Senate floor to cast a tie-breaking vote to ensure that Democrats' budget resolution could proceed. On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50, the Senate being equally divided, the Vice President votes in the affirmative, and the concurrent resolution as amended is adopted. This whole process is basically a way for Democrats to pass a stimulus bill without the support of Republicans and essentially skip over the part where they would need 60 votes to be able to pass something like this in the Senate. So what do we know about what they're actually trying to achieve with this stimulus bill? Like, what would it do? Yeah, so so despite the antics, obviously the stakes here and the underlying substance is of incredible significance and importance. President Biden really, right after he was elected, released this $1.9 trillion plan that is at, at a minimum sort of the framework, the foundation of the package that Democrats are trying to pass. You can think of it as being broken into a bunch of different buckets, but the main ones are about $160 billion for vaccine distribution and uh, testing, about $100 billion for schools to reopen safely, hundreds of billions of dollars for unemployment benefits that are, that are currently expected to expire for millions of Americans in the middle of March. Those would be extended through September. And another round of stimulus payments up to $1,400 per person on top of the $600 that was approved by Congress in December, making a sort of $2,000 payment in, in some. And going into this process of trying to pass this stimulus bill, which would be Biden's essentially like first major legislative achievement as president, we heard Biden talk a lot about how he wanted this to be bipartisan. He wanted to demonstrate that he could find a middle ground with Republicans to help Americans struggling from the pandemic. So to what extent has that proven possible in this process? So the White House has a new line about this, which, depending on your perspective, is either very clever or totally disingenuous. They're saying that their bill is actually actually is bipartisan, even though no Republicans in Congress appear to support it. And the reason for that, they say, is that Republican voters support it. And therefore, it's bipartisan in terms of the people in this country believing that it's a good idea. And when the White House started saying that line, I think it was a pretty clear signal that they're, they're going to be willing to do this without Republican votes. They'd sort of indicated that already, but that really emphasized the point. There was a lot of uncertainty in the first few weeks about was this initial bid just an attempt to sort of placate the left and then Biden would sort of race to the center and say that he cut the best deal he could. It looks increasingly to, to me at least that that is not the route the White House is going to go down, that they're going to say that it's more important to go big and to do something that they believe fulfills the needs of the country than it is to get um, you know a handful of Republican senators on board. Senator Susan Collins has led a group of about 10 Republican senators that sent a letter to the White House last week outlining an approximately $600 billion proposal that they said could be sort of the opening bid in a, in a negotiation. The White House hosted those Senate Republicans um, last week, and there was a lot of upbeat sort of sounding talk after the meeting. And 
both sides expressed a desire to continue to work together. But really since then, those talks appear to have come to a standstill. And it seems like the, the vast majority of Democrats I talked to at least are pretty eager to do this uh, their way. And we've heard Republicans since the beginning of the pandemic talk about their concerns with spending too much money on coronavirus relief. Why have they essentially decided that they can't support what Democrats are trying to pass now? Republicans have said over and over that they think that this package is too big. A lot of Democrats get upset about that and say, you know, Trump authorized a ton of spending that they were okay with. There are, I mean, to give some of these Republicans some some of their due, you know, the, a lot of these Republicans were also saying that the Trump uh, measures were too far, that the measures passed under Trump authorized too much spending. There's now been over $4 trillion added to the federal debt as a result of COVID relief, and this would, would continue to increase that number. And what are the stakes right now for regular Americans who are sitting here watching all of this in Congress and wondering, is any help going to come from me anytime soon? Well, the jobs number we got today showed the unemployment rate ticking down to 6.3%, which is still very high. But perhaps most worryingly, it it showed that sort of the momentum in the job market has really, really stalled. We've had three months of basically anemic, flat growth. We lost over 22 million jobs in the spring, and about half of those have been recovered. And if that number was continuing to increase, then we would say, oh, that's good. You know, we're going to continue to, to close that gap. But it looks like that remaining 11 million or so jobs really are not materializing anytime soon. So you have huge you know, numbers of people who were working last year are still laid off. And the Biden administration has said that this funding is also necessary to get the vaccine distribution right. And it's hard to imagine something that, you know, everyday people could care about more than making sure that this um, vaccination rollout goes correctly and we can all get on with our lives and go back to the post office and all the things that we miss doing. Just the last thing I'll note here is that, you know, tens of millions of Americans are on unemployment benefits and that are set to expire in the middle of March. The White House has said that it is determined to do something before that point. But um, the longer this drags out, the harder it will be to um, make sure that those Americans get this relief. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. On Friday afternoon, House Democrats voted to approve the Senate's plan. That vote kicks off the process to turn the proposal into actual legislation. Nancy Pelosi also promised that the stimulus package will get passed before mid-March. That is when unemployment aid expires for millions of Americans. Okay, well, let's just start. Uh, so, Jacob, introduce yourself. Say who you are, what you do. I'm Jacob Bogage. I'm a business reporter at the Washington Post, and I'm obsessed with chicken wings. <laughs> they're delicious, and they're fun to write about. Like the economics of chicken wings? The economics of chicken wings, the taste of chicken wings, the texture of chicken wings. Just chicken wings. So you are here to talk about a crisis that is facing America right now. What is this chicken wing crisis? Well, we're a couple days away from the Super Bowl and we're running out of chicken wings. What do you mean we're running out of chicken wings? The pandemic has caused us to eat so much chicken that we just don't have enough wings left. (laughs) We have eaten so many 
chicken wings that now that it's time for the Super Bowl, we no longer have enough chicken wings. Wait, okay. So when you say that we have eaten so many chicken wings that we've that we've basically run out, like, is that like a theory or do we know that for sure that like our chicken consumption or our chicken wing consumption as a country has just skyrocketed? We know that pretty much for sure. And there's a few ways we know that. One is that restaurants can't really get enough chicken wings right now. The other is the way chicken wings are being produced. We can't just like make more chickens and we can't make more wings on chickens, right? Chickens only have two wings. But we're eating so much chicken and, and there are problems with the production. On a production line, you know, it, it takes more time to break down a bird into different parts. And so we're also selling more whole chickens and half chickens where the wings aren't split off. That's causing a real crunch. But I also don't understand, like, why are we eating more chickens and more chicken wings? Like, I get that it's because of the pandemic, but it's not like we weren't eating food before coronavirus started, you know? That's a great point. Yes, it's not like we weren't eating food before the coronavirus started. It's not like chicken wings were not already delicious before the coronavirus started. The pandemic starts and it hits right before the NCAA men's basketball tournament, March Madness. That is one of like two chicken wing holidays in the United (laughs) States. And the chicken wing market is basically dominated by sports events. It's dominated by March Madness. It's dominated by the start of football season in the late summer and early fall, and then the Super Bowl. And so you can actually see supply and the price of chicken wings fluctuate based on events in the sports calendar. So the NCAA tournament gets canceled. Ergo, we have way too many chicken wings. We have a surplus of chicken wings. Production basically grinds to a halt. People aren't eating out at restaurants, so they're just sitting. And then we kind of figure out a way to live our lives a little bit. We have ghost kitchens pop up, right? So these are just takeout-only restaurants that don't, you know, you can't eat in. They start buying up a bunch of chicken wings. Football comes back, and we're all stuck in pandemic purgatory that, like, football Saturdays become, and Sundays become, like, these holidays. So we eat more chicken wings then. The demand for chicken increases because we're eating at home so much. We get to February in the Super Bowl, and uh, we just don't have enough. And it's not because we're not making enough. We're making as much as we ever made. But the demand is so incredible that, you know, we're just scarfing them down too fast. But, Jacob, do you know what the irony is of this whole, like, chicken wing shortage? I mean, do you do you know the origin story of chicken wings that makes this situation even more bonkers? Well, chicken wings were created because... They were getting thrown in the garbage. Yes, which nobody knows. This is I'm obsessed with this story. I think this is a fascinating part of this whole thing that like chicken wings were like a solution to a problem. But y- you you tell the story. Yeah, they're a solution to a problem. They're they're getting thrown out, and then we realize we can fry them and coat them in sauce, and they're delicious. And all of a sudden, 
they are a habitual food. Because when you think back to like when our parents were kids, I mean, like chicken wings were not considered a good part of the chicken because like they actually are kind of like gnarly and they don't have that much meat on them. And they're sort of like awkward and difficult to deal with. And so people were just throwing away chicken wings and would prefer, you know, the, the breast and the thigh and the parts of the chicken with more meat. And that all these companies had to like figure out a way to make wings like attractive or something that people actually wanted to buy. And that's where the whole like, you know, buy 10 chicken wings for $3 and like eat them while you watch football. Like that's where that whole thing came about. Yeah, they're they were not economical. They are entirely less nutritious. The United States would ship a lot of chicken wings around the world because there are other cultures that these were more popular. They were more of a staple food. You used the whole bird. That's not the case anymore. We, you know, the chicken wing exports have really dropped over time because the American chicken wing market is so strong. And what do you think it is about chicken wings that we as a nation just find so comforting? Sauce. We like sauce. and. Simple. Chicken wings are something we can put sauce on. And I have written about chicken wings because I'm oddly obsessed. And literally every person I talk to, you know, I, I end my interviews by, by asking folks, you know, is there anything else I should know? Anything we didn't get to that, that you want to talk about? And they say, you know, people eat chicken wings because they like sauce. What, what is your favorite sauce to put on a chicken wing? I'm a regular buffalo guy. Buffalo sauce. Mm. Uh, it's got to be neon orange. Nothing too, too spicy, but I enjoy a good kick. The neon orange part, I think, is the best part about buffalo wings. Where... Yeah, if it doesn't glow in the dark, I don't want to eat <laughs> I love that. So, Jacob, in addition to asking you about the chicken wings, I am supposed to ask you about the actual Super Bowl and who is playing in the Super Bowl. Is that information that you can tell us? You know, being a former sports writer, it is. We're going to see the Kansas City Chiefs and quarterback Patrick Mahomes, probably the best player in the NFL today, against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady. Yes, Tom Brady, the GOAT himself, in his first season in Florida, away from Bill Belichick in New England, in what may be the best quarterback matchup in Super Bowl history. The game starts at 6.30 p.m. like it does every year. In Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the first time in NFL history that a Super Bowl will be played at the home stadium of one of the teams. Jacob, you know, I find all of that interesting, but to be honest, none of it is as interesting as the chicken wings. No, ignore the game, eat your chicken wings. Jacob Bogage is a business reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On Thursday, Democrats in the House voted to remove Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments, citing the conspiracy theories and threatening statements she's promoted in the past. We on Post Reports did a deep dive on Greene in Wednesday's episode of the podcast about what brought Greene to Congress and what she means for the GOP going forward. So Marjorie Taylor Greene may not have other people who agree with all of her theories, but you can see how the espousing of those theories and the welcoming of people like her into the party has manifested itself in action uh, that we saw in the storming of the Capitol and other matters. If you have not listened to that story from Wednesday, I highly recommend going back to catch up on it. You can find a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. 
Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Swarnovsky are associate producers. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.